Hello mortals, we are doing a content warning up top for this week. You've no doubt seen the title of the episode. We are going to be discussing suicide by way of jumping, and at least one site known to draw people to it in their final moments of crisis. Please take care of yourself while listening, and do not be afraid of skipping the episode if it isn't the right time or place for it. Your health and safety are far more important than a podcast episode. Welcome to Mortals, a podcast where we explore how humans have dealt with death throughout history. From embalming and epitaphs to mourning and morgues. We are taking a look at rites, rituals, and practices from around the world. Mortals podcast is for the morbidly curious or the curiously morbid. This week we are talking about suicide barriers. Now let's get on to the show. What is the tallest thing you've ever stood on? Oh. Go ahead, Christia. The Grand Canyon for me, I think definitely was the tallest thing I've ever looked over the edge of. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of aligns with mine as well. Uh, Which is not the Grand Canyon because I've not been to Colorado. But Janine, you said you had... Uh, I don't know the name of it, but the town where I grew, well, not where I grew up, but where I lived for a couple years towards the end of high school, um, there was a mine way up on the mountain. And one time I got to go on a trip that went up there. It's like a tourist spot or not necessarily just tourists, but it's just like a, a history spot to go. And it's literally on the top of a mountain. Um, so I was just like looking out across the whole valley. I don't know how tall the mountain is, but it was fucking tall. Yeah, fair enough. I, I've i been to some very tall places. I've been to the top of the Space Needle and Tokyo Tower and that sort of thing, but the place that feels the tallest is the same sort of wide open cavernous and unbarriered space, um, which is an area in the Fraser Valley near where I spent a lot of time growing up. There is an area that was kept, uh, like cut into by a fjord back in the Ice Age. So there's a very large, sharp cliff into a very, very deep um, kind of canyon. And that is the thing that feels the tallest, even though kind of like the Grand Canyon. It's not necessarily that that spot is tall, but that the ground in front of you is way farther down than it should be. And my follow-up question to that, and of course you were not obligated to answer given the subject of today's episode, is did you feel the call of the void, the momentary impulse or thought, what if I jumped? I don't, I don't recall, but that to me means probably not, because I feel like that's something that would make an impression on you. I am afraid of many things (laughs) as I think we've discussed to a large degree on this podcast Uh, and heights is one of those things so Mm -hmm. but definitely have had the intrusive thought of um, what if I fell or we were also told a story right before visiting the Grand Canyon 
why there are no barriers uh, around the edge of where they let people visit commonly, or like where the tour buses get off and all that. And the story kind of stuck with me because at one point somebody fell unintentionally and um, they were pretty graphic in their descriptions. So it definitely left an impact, but at the same time when I was like standing near the edge there, I'm just like, oh. <laughs> yeah, though I am curious as to why there isn't a barrier around the Grand Canyon other than the fact that it is the grandest of canyons and that's a lot of fucking fencing. So I guess... At one point, there was an area that had barriers, but people would sit on the barriers or they would, you know, to try and get pictures and things. And because uh. of the barriers were there, people had like a false sense of security. And I guess there was a couple incidents where like it actually caused more accidents because the barrier provided a false sense of security. I don't have any facts. Like this was a story that was told to me, so I don't know if this is actually true, but it feels very true. So take that. I guess, with a grain of salt. Yeah, and thank you for the vulnerability in that, too. I am also <laughs> afraid of heights, so when I come up to an unbarriered edge, I am, I will not get close to it. I think I Absolute like, crawled up to the terror. edge on my stomach. Like, I think on your belly? I yeah, I think, I, yeah. like, I, my mom was, I think, kind of, like, I think the people, because I was with my mom, and I think people at first kind of laughed, but then they were like, actually, you know what? She's kind of got a point. <laughs> so... <laughs> I stand by that. So the reason that I wanted to start with talking about the Call of the Void is that it is something that most people do deal with. It is in the camp of an intrusive thought, but it is also a normal thing and is different from suicidal ideation. And as we're talking about suicide barriers and the kind of critiques and thoughts that there are around them and their efficacy, it's important to keep in mind that there is a difference between those two things. So the Call of the Void, originally called L'Appel du Vide in French, I probably mispronounced that, my apologies, um, and it refers to the intrusive thought that usually corresponds with the worst possible outcome. So commonly, this is when you're near a high place, you're walking alongside a bridge, you're hiking up a cliff, what if I jumped? Right? It's driving down a road and having the very fleeting moment of what if I drove into oncoming traffic? It's unfortunately very common, but it is usually fleeting. It's something that you can push away immediately, kind of go, oh, what, where the fuck did that thought come from? And do away with it. So it's unclear as to where the call of the void comes from. There haven't been a lot of studies about it, but currently it is theorized that it's a kind of miscommunication that happens in the brain that's kind of a backwards understanding of, an, of the brain's alarm systems that force you to do things like take a step back or, you know, pay attention to the road, that sort of thing. And then the rationalizing part of your brain going, why did I have that response? I wasn't going to do that. And then the brain going, oh, I must have had the impulse to do that. Which doesn't totally make sense to me, but I'm not a psychologist nor a neuroscientist. And again, it is currently just a theory. There's very few studies on it. I can mm. kind of see uh. that as, like, worst-case scenario. It's, like, your brain being, like, what if I jumped? What if you jumped? And then it kind of, like, almost, like, inspires that that rational thought to such a degree where it, it kind of triggers that adrenaline uh, or your asymptomatic nervous system, the, the flight-or-flight system. Yeah. I can see it. Yeah, it's, like, 
your your body has to recognize that it's dangerous and gauge that it's dangerous in order for your brain to say, we shouldn't do that. Yeah, which in that way definitely makes sense as kind of the brain going, hey, by the way, my main function is to keep you alive. Yeah, exactly. So to the non-suicidal mind, this tends to be more in the category of like chatter or static in terms of intrusive thoughts, where it's only occasional and it doesn't inspire like physical impulse sort of thing. It's just a thought. It's not a physical impulse. That cannot be said for people who are dealing with suicidal ideation. Um, That being said, if you are dealing with intrusive thoughts that get to the point where they are disruptive, with it are overwhelming, um, or they require certain actions to alleviate, please see a medical professional as overwhelming intrusive thoughts can be symptomatic of other issues going on. Um, especially if those intrusive thoughts are overwhelmingly to harm yourself or to kill yourself. I have been there. God help. It's the reason I'm alive today. Suicidal ideation being only one of the many things that can cause intrusive thoughts. Um, But suicidal ideation is a complicated thing to define. There's no, like, DSM-5 description of it, really. There's no standardized description available for what suicidal ideation is. So it's this very broad category of ruminating on obsessing, fantasizing, or thinking about death and or being dead or dying. And it tends to present in two different states. Passive suicidal ideation, which is just kind of thinking about it, imagining being dead, you know, kind of hoping you don't wake up in the morning. And active suicidal ideation, which is the point at which you are starting to formulate a plan. Most people who experience suicidal ideation do not go on to commit suicide. It is just something that is always going on in the background and is is a thing that people struggle with, but most of the time it does not lead to suicide. So it's it's very important that we understand that Call of the Void and suicidal ideation are not the same thing. Call of the Void is a momentary intrusive thought versus the opportunity to end one's life in accordance with plans that have been made slowly and agonizingly over time has an air of spontaneity to it, but it is not the same kind of impulse. So if you've listened past the start of this episode and thought, that's fine, but are maybe recognizing that distinction in yourself, this is the last port of call to get off of this episode and talk to somebody. Please take care of yourself. So we're going to talk about a couple of high mortality bridges in North America. First of which, anyone have any guesses as to which bridge has the highest jump-based mortality rate in North America? I want to say, like, the Golden Gate Bridge? Yeah, that's the only one that really comes to mind. Yes, so the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco is the second most popular suicide site in the world. Number one. I was going to say, number one, are we (laughs) going to... Yeah, so the reason I'm not talking about number one, it's the bridge in in Nanjing, China. So accessing records or news about it is extremely difficult as I do not read uh, any Chinese dialects. (laughs) That's fair. So This is a a reason why a lot of our episodes are bound kind of to English-speaking things or... From the perspective of English-speaking people who've 
written about these things because we don't really read other languages. I can read a little bit of French, but it's not great. Yeah, so I couldn't find very much about the bridge in Nanjing, China, but there is a lot about the Golden Gate Bridge that I can get access to. So we'll be talking about the Golden Gate Bridge and the one that follows it on the list, or did until 2003, which is actually the Prince Edward Viaduct in Toronto, Canada. I was also surprised that that was so high up on the list of suicide sites in the world, but it was number three. Brutal. I was uh, going to say, I, I don't know, maybe that's just because Toronto's a very populous city, but in terms of the world, not really. In Canada, yeah. absolutely. The bridge in Canada is in the Don Valley. It's over a large number of active train lines, so it's in a pretty urban hmm. spot question worth asking and looking at the demographics of the people who are using these sites is important as well but the information is actually rather hard to gather because there's an aspect of suicide like these that is contagious and therefore there's a lot of controlling of those records going out which we'll talk a little bit about with the Golden Gate Bridge in particular. So they stopped publishing the official accounts of how many people had jumped and died in 1995 after the 997th suicide from the Golden Gate Bridge. Oh boy. Yeah. We know from studies and stuff that major mortality events like public suicides and or mass shootings tend to be contagious in that when it is publicized and put out in the media and made very, very visible to the public, it spurs similar actions among other members of the public who are potentially already thinking or planning of doing something similar. It's one of the major critiques around the heavy media presence surrounding school shootings, particularly in the United States, is that it can spur further incidents. And also with the Golden Gate Bridge, they were worried about record breakers because it is a site that draws in so many people from around the world, actually. There are people who fly to San Francisco specifically to jump from the Golden Gate Bridge. And we'll talk about what makes a bridge into a suicide magnet in a little bit when we've talked about the two different bridges. But it's, uh, yeah, they don't want people to buy into the idea that it increases the significance of their death to be the new record. I think that makes sense. So the Golden Gate Bridge was first conceptualized in 1916, first properly proposed in 1917. At that point in time, the only really practical way of getting across the Golden Gate Strait over to Marin County on the other side of the bay was via a ferry. And at the time, it was thought impossible to build a bridge here because the strait was 2,000 meters or 6,700 feet across. It had extremely strong swirling tides and currents. It was 113 meters deep, 372 feet. So about the same size as a 37 story building, like the Empire State Building is a comparison that I heard. Deep, it has extremely strong winds that blow through and tends to be absolutely smothered in a blinding fog. So a logistical nightmare to build in, but there was a lot of innovations going around with metal compositions and with construction and engineering techniques and the math and stuff. So I think the word you're looking for is metallurgy. That's the one, metallurgy. Stresses are really important in the English language. Apparently. Yeah. A lot of innovations in metallurgy. Lots of innovations went into building the Golden Gate Bridge. There was lots of issues with funding, with finding contractors, with 
engineers and mathematicians, because this was also being built during the Great Depression. They began construction in 1933 and finished it in 1937. The mathematician who did all of the physics work actually got fired halfway through by the head engineer or project head, Joseph Strauss, but he kept working on it because there was nothing else for him to do because it was the Great Depression. Um, and he turned in over 10 volumes of handwritten calculations that made it feasible for this bridge to exist. He was posthumously given credit many years later. But the bridge in total cost, in today's dollars, about half a billion dollars. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, not half a million, half a billion. <laughs> and that was coming in under budget. But at the time that it was built, it was the longest and the tallest suspension bridge in the world. It was painted its iconic orange colors for visibility in the fog, as well as aesthetics. And ironically, during the construction, Joseph Strauss actually innovated on the net systems that they were using on the bridge to protect iron workers from falling to their death. More than 19 people fell and were caught by these nets, and 19 of them formed a club called Halfway to Hell Club. 11 people did die from falling while the bridge was being constructed, 10 of them all in one incident, in which 12 men were on an improperly secured scaffolding, which collapsed into the net. One of the men actually like grabbed the girder they were working on and stayed up that way, but the weight of the other 11 men plus the scaffold hitting the net actually caused it to fail. Oh no. And one of the men, I believe, was close enough to the edge that he was able to, like, grab onto something, but the rest fell to their death, which is really unfortunate, uh, but also kind of ironic, because the bridge does not currently have any sort of net or barrier, which is kind of what we're getting to. So the deck of the bridge currently is 240 feet or 75 meters above the water, and the guardrail... Do you want to guess how tall the guardrail is? Two feet. I'm gonna say four... Christina's on the num on the money again. It is four feet. Two feet would be crazy. I don't think anyone could walk on it without being like, ah. I mean, four feet, I feel like, is just high enough to be, ooh, while also still giving the illusion of safety, you know? Yeah, so when they originally were working on the final draft of the bridge, it was set to be five and a half feet tall, but Joseph Strauss forced them to lower it to four feet because he felt it obscured the view. Hmm. Mm. So, worth noting. So that's 75 meters. When a person jumps from the cable just outside the barrier, they only get four seconds of air time. And when they hit the water, they are going between 120 and 140 kilometers an hour. Oh my God. Yeah. That's how fast. It's a 98% mortality rate. That's how fast they accelerate. Yeah. I don't know. It, sh it probably sure as hell felt like terminal velocity. Mm-hmm. No doubt. Most people who jump are killed on impact because it's like landing on cement before the water sucks them under a very significant depth because that's a lot of force to displace somehow. Usually the impact will break bones and impale organs immediately. Wow. Um, but not everybody who jumps is killed immediately. A fair number of them actually drown or die of hypothermia because they're not initially killed by the fall. And it's, yeah, 98% of people who jump are killed. You don't get away scot-free, even if you do survive the jump. And it's worth noting that 100% of people who survived the jump all reported feeling instantaneous regret the second they cleared the bear, like cleared the railing. I've, I've actually heard that before, but I've, I've heard that a lot of people who jump generally on the way down and people who have survived generally realize, you know, 
things aren't so bad. <laughs> That's understandable when you're literally, you know, facing death. And originally I put this in my notes further down, but suicide is a complicated thing. It's a, it's a complicated experience. It comes from mm-hmm. myriad of sources, but generally at the, and I might be overgeneralizing, um, and I don't mean to speak crassly of anybody's experience, but there tends to be a moment of crisis that compels somebody to take action immediately. People don't make plan Bs or plan Cs because the plan is to die. You don't make future plans after that sort of thing, but it tends to be a moment of crisis in which you are not thinking clearly in which the the crashing weight of whatever's compelling you is at its highest. And it's part of the reason that things like suicide hotlines being printed on guardrails don't work. It's because those people aren't going to stop and be like, hmm, maybe I will call someone. They're on a mission. They're going to do a thing. But the brain's main job is to keep you alive. And I think once you satisfy that moment of crisis or you bypass that moment of crisis, your brain kicks it and is like, hey, being alive is the number one thing that we're trying to do here. Mm-hmm. I had a, I had a thought, sorry to interrupt, but no, go ahead. I had a thought and then I wondered if, so I thought you were talking about the, the hotline numbers being on there. Yeah. And I thought, well, what does it hurt for them to be there? right? It doesn't. But then I thought maybe maybe that is an indicator to people that this is a high suicide place and that might impact their feelings in some way. I don't know. I mean, yeah. you can see suicide hotline numbers and things like I've seen them on the bus. I don't think yeah. many people commit suicide inside of a moving bus, but you know, maybe, you know, maybe that's just an excuse for them to have it there to kind of counter that. It's like, well, we have them everywhere. Yeah. And it's, it's not a bad thing for us all to have access to that phone number for not only ourselves, if we're in a situation where it's like, I am in fear of hurting myself. But also if the people around us are, if we're in an active crisis situation, trying to get a hold of somebody who has some amount of first response might be helpful, right? It's not a bad thing to have handy. It just isn't going to be the thing that stops somebody who is on a mission to die. So they stopped officially releasing numbers at 997. But current estimates, and these are numbers provided mostly by eyewitness accounts, as well as coroner reports that between 1,600 and 1,800 people are known to have jumped and died from the Golden Gate Bridge since it was opened in 1937. Uh, It's likely higher because there are going to be people who were not witnessed or found. Part of what makes the Golden Gate Bridge such an enticing site is the same sort of thing that makes any high mortality site enticing to somebody who's looking for the right opportunity. And that is that it is easy to access and it has low visibility. There's very little to block people from walking across the bridge. Lots of people do it. People bike across the bridge every day. They also removed the physical toll people and replaced it with, I think it's called Fast Track, where they just mail you a bill based on your license plate. So there's even less people to interact with getting onto the bridge. There's parking lots at both ends. It's extremely accessible because it's a busy bridge and the only people who can see you are also on the bridge. It's fairly low visibility, especially once you're over the railing. There is the small sort of cable of like pipes and stuff that go across the side that's only a couple feet deep. Once you're over the railing, a lot of people, you can't really see people. That being said, the Golden Gate Bridge does have a fairly large number of volunteers from various organizations, off-duty cops, mental health professionals, as well as iron workers who do on their off days and when they have spare time at work, patrol up and down the bridge, 
specifically to talk people out of dying. Wow. Which has seriously reduced the number of people who do jump. Some estimates is that 80 to 90% of would-be jumpers are stopped by these volunteers and these people who are out there just to try and help these people. Whether it's talking to them, just listening to them, Sometimes, especially the iron workers, are trained to physically restrain people because they tend to be the ones who are the most familiar with the bridge and have the most experience and who are the less, the least likely to accidentally fall trying to stop somebody. It's still risky, obviously, but it saved a fuck ton of lives that there are people out there who care that much and to kind of take on that work themselves too, knowing that each time they engage in one of these conversations, it might be the last conversation the person they're talking to ever has. Which that's, a, that's a heavy weight to bear. It is. But it really goes to show, and this is something that really came to mind as I was looking into this subject, is that people care. People care about strangers' lives. And I'm very much of the mind that if you give people the opportunity to do good, they will almost without fail choose to. Happily without demanding thank yous or compensation. Absolutely. And I think that it's the same here, where if people have the opportunity to help, if they have the opportunity to care and to prevent somebody from harming themselves, they will. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of people in San Francisco and Marin County and across the country who are dedicated to having a barrier or a net set up to reduce the number of people who are able to jump from the bridge. Because they've been trying to put one in for 60 years. Oh. Is how long normal people have been trying to get the city and the, like, highway, uh, the directors of the Golden Gate Bridge Highway and Transportation District to actually build one. Because... The main things that they're listing as problems are funding, which the bridge collects a toll for a reason. And there were plans put in place by Barack Obama during his administration that had to do with allocating more funds to maintenance and updating of infrastructure. So there was federal money available. There were some concerns about the engineering and the structural capabilities of the bridge because it is built in a way so that it has a little bit of flex due to the extremely high winds that it's subjected to. But like, how how much of a structural issue is it going to be to stick some fucking toothpicks out the side with some little nets? But the biggest complaint that they get is about the aesthetics of the bridge, which is, I guess, the the one exception to the people caring part. But I'm guessing the people who are fighting it based on aesthetics are not people who have lost loved ones to the accessibility of such a place. I have a thought, and it seems like a very strange episode to talk about the Incredibles film, (laughs) um, which, if you are not familiar or do not recall, it starts with a man suing Mr. Incredible because he stopped his suicide attempt. Yes. And I kind of wonder if, by installing a net of some sort, like, I don't know for sure, but I can't help but wonder if by installing a net, if somebody jumps off and say they injure themselves on the net, if they can then sue the city i maybe i I don't know if that's a consideration for why they haven't i'm not saying that i agree with it just to be perfectly clear i'm not saying i agree with this i'm not saying that i condone or like i i wonder if that is part of the reason why it's an interesting quandary 
But given how many off-duty cops are regularly patrolling the bridge for suicides, and this might be urban myth, but I have been told a number of times that suicide is technically illegal because it gives police the justification for breaking down doors to intervene. Right. That being said, I feel like the cost of that still is worth it. Absolutely. If that, yeah. If that person lives. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the other critiques that is leveraged against setting up suicide barriers is that there are people who believe that it won't make a difference because people will just go somewhere else to jump. This is blatantly untrue. And we'll talk about that in a second and some of the like stats and evidence against the extremely short-sighted and uninformed opinion that the people who want to die will just find a way to die. And it's like, no, there's, there's, there is a point to getting in the way of somebody's suicide. That being said, with the number of suicides increasing kind of dramatically over the last couple of years and the age of kind of the typical victim getting lower and lower. So rather than being 30s and 40s, it's now more into the 20s and 30s. So younger people are dying more frequently. The directors have finally started moving forward with projects to use toll money, state and federal money, to begin building a safety net located 20 feet below the deck and stretching out 20 feet in either direction. They approved the funding in 2017, but currently they have not moved very far. I think they've set up one joist uh, and then things got pushed back repeatedly during the pandemic. There was issues with storing materials on national parks grounds, more funding issues. Um, they've pushed back completion date to, it's projected to be 2023, but we'll see. They are not moving very quickly. And for every day that they stall, and every week that they stall, and every year that they stall, more people are dying. Moving from that site, let's look at one that's a little closer to home. And this is the Prince Edward Viaduct, more commonly called the Bloor Viaduct. Like floor, but with a B. So the Prince Edward Viaduct in Toronto is the second most popular site, or was the second most popular site for suicide in North America. This one is a little bit of a smaller bridge and also didn't face quite so many complications in getting built because it was being built mostly over land. So it's an arch bridge rather than a suspension bridge. It's got a span of 1,620 feet, 494 meters, and a height of 131 feet or 40 meters. So about a 13-story building. However, underneath it is not the bay. It is the Don River, yes, but also the Don Valley Parkway, Bayview Avenue, two active rail lines, and a bike lane. So there's a lot of traffic that passes underneath this. <laughs> it was built shortly before the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, it was voted in favor of in 1913, and it was completed in 1918, so pre-Depression, thankfully, for what is today about $39.5 million, so significantly cheaper as well. Over time, though, it did become a suicide magnet, the same way the Golden Gate Bridge did, and by 2003 had seen nearly 500 suicides. One of the additional problems with this versus Golden Gate Bridge is that people were falling into traffic. Yeah, that's, that is the extra complication. So, with that being the case, 1997 was the peak year for suicides. 17 people died. And so, in 1998, a barrier was approved by the Toronto City Council. So pretty quick turnaround, but actually getting it built was delayed 
by quite a bit because the budget had approved them for $2.5 million, but the lowest bid by contractors for the project was $5.5 million. So they ended up relying on a fundraising campaign to raise the rest of the funds to build the barrier. And it was completed in 2003, which is why we have a number up to 2003 for suicides from this bridge. It is not your typical barrier like you might see at the Empire State Building, Eiffel Tower, Space Needle of just like hard plexiglass and then curved in kind of metal braces with preventative wiring and that sort of thing. Kind of like you would see to prevent you from getting into a yard you're not supposed to be in. The barrier was designed by a man named Derek Revington and it was called the Luminous Veil. So this barrier on both sides of the bridge is made up of over 9,000 steel rods spaced about five inches apart and they rise up to five meters out to cantilevered arms. So they kind of have this big open expanse sort of thing. They're meant to be looked through so they don't really impede the view, but they were also designed in a way that was supposed to be replicant of a veil and of kind of symbolizing both like the strings of a harp and a an orchestra and kind of that playing aspect, but also acting like a veil between life and death and really kind of embracing the reality of why this barrier was there. The lighting wasn't installed initially. It was completed in 2015. And these thousands of LED lights that sit in between the two sheets of the two sets of strands alternates in unique patterns of, you know, blue and yellow and pink and all these very soft dynamic colors which when you watch videos of it, it kind of looks like the shadows of people walking along the path on the other side, which I thought was really interesting given the way that it's built. Since the installation of the barrier, zero people have died by suicide at the Prince Edward Viaduct. Amazing. I'm looking at uh, pictures of it right now. And yeah, it's actually like quite, it kind of just farts into the wind towards the, uh, the whole aesthetic argument for not having barriers against the San Francisco Bridge. It's like, well, there. if you want to, if the cost of saving people's lives is really making it pretty, like there, there are options and there is a way to do that. You just need to not be stingy. <laughs> exactly. And there, there are a fair number of examples of this, of using art to save lives in this way. The mm. library at NYU has like a very large open atrium that all of the stairs and the walkways are against. And after three students committed suicide, they commissioned a barrier built. They they tried a plexiglass barrier that wasn't well installed in between the second and third suicide. But after that, they hired an artist who actually installed these huge golden perforated sheets that make it look like, and I quote, a digital waterfall. And it's a beautiful installation. And nobody else has jumped because there's a barrier. But it's also aesthetic. It's beautiful. It Art makes places more pleasant to be. Mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's a whole other conversation that could be had about art and therapy. I have a lot of feelings about art and how it, especially in cityscapes, and how it adds to cultural fabric. But also if you can, I, 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 I want to say patch over, but that's not the right term. It's not the right phrase to describe what you're doing. You're kind of, it's like filling a, a pothole in a road with an art piece. 
They're taking something that, you know, is kind of taking away from the city and not only just like fixing it, not you're not just like, you know, putting up plexiglass, you're not just putting up a cement barrier, you're not just putting up a four foot railing or a six foot railing or whatever the bare minimum is, but like you're making it better like you're going above and beyond just like fixing the problem. You're trying to prevent the problem in the future. Yeah, you're like, enriching it. Yeah. There's a life affirming aspect to it. Yeah. Of not only being like, please don't hurt yourself. And also being like, there is beauty. Yes, 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 yes. There is some value, even if it's extrinsic and it's, ex- it's derivative or whatever else you want to say about art. But when you look at something that looks good, the brain is like, ah, yeah, that's good. (laughs) Even if it's like somebody, like some artist, like poured their heart into um, an art piece on like a preventative, a suicide prevention barrier of some sort, I'm sure, you know, you might look at that and you might go, that's the ugliest fucking piece of art I've ever seen in my life. But it still makes you pause and go, holy shit, that thing is ugly. I don't know how to climb over it. And so that's the thing with barriers, as opposed to other means of suicide deterrence. So places like The Vessel, which Ask a Mortician did an excellent video on The Vessel and why it's dangerous as a piece of art, not to fly directly in the face of... So The Vessel is a large art structure in the Hudson Yards in New York. And it's basically... 150 foot tall beehive made entirely of staircases. So it's a little bit dystopian in that you're climbing and climbing and climbing, you have nowhere to go, but there's only a waist high railing. There have been three suicides from it and they attempted a number of things, putting life affirming messages on railings, putting a ticket price, as well as enforcing a buddy system and having security personnel who are trained in dealing with people in crisis. And yet it proved ineffective when a 14 year old jumped from the top. Uh, he was visiting with his family. Oh. Yeah. So currently the vessel's closed kind of indefinitely, but the architects are so beholden to their vision that they refuse to put in a simple barrier, to put in nets, to raise the railing height. I'm like, aesthetics is not a reason that people should have to die, especially when you can make beautiful barriers that force people to stop. Because like we talked about earlier, somebody who is in a, in a moment of crisis, in suicidal thoughts, and who's presented with an opportunity that aligns with their plans, don't have a plan B. And if you can force them to stop, if you get in their way, it's enough to potentially break that moment of crisis, to disrupt the overwhelming feelings that are driving them there. It forces them to pause and sometimes to redirect, and then that energy passes. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Right? It's the same way that if a kid is crying and you can distract them with something, they stop crying. Right? If someone makes you laugh when you're upset. Or how somebody can say something that absolutely brings the vibe from 10 to a zero, right? There's there's something about disruption, about putting something in the way that can break an emotional hold that is either environmental or internal. And nothing works quite the same way as a physical barrier. Because when we were talking about suicide barriers, we're talking about last efforts. Mm-hmm. This is the last thing between a person and the end of their life. There are a lot of issues in cultures, in societies, in our medical systems, and how we relate to each other that creates the epidemic of suicide that we have around the world. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't still be trying where we can. Advocating for barriers, advocating for more mental health professionals, paying them better, giving people better access. You know, it's a a myriad of things. It's changing our work cultures. It's the way that we deal with gender and labor 
and like <laughs> everything, everything. The way we treat people, just the way the way yeah. we treat people. Exactly. So there's a lot of things that we as a culture need to do painfully, bit by bit, confronting it to truly stop people from reaching that moment of crisis. But at the very least, if what we can do is put one more barrier in front of somebody between them and the end, that is the least we can do. I definitely agree with that. That's a beautiful yeah, way of putting it, Mariah. I, yeah, and it's there were lots of people who were kind of dismissive of the Luminous Veil and whether or not it was effective. And looking around and going, well, did they just go to another bridge? There's one incident in which a man could not jump from his first choice. <laughs> but did go to the Lee side bridge three kilometers away and jumped from there. That is the only case that I have seen or that has been noted of somebody going from where they could not jump through the luminous veil to another location. Mm -hmm. A study done in the 1970s by a university of California psychologist, Richard Seiden tracked the lives of 515 people who were stopped from jumping at the golden gate bridge. So he tracked through data, 515 people from 1937 up until 1971. Of the 515, just under 6% went on to commit suicide elsewhere. So when we look at the sort of preventative measures, the volunteers who were talking people down, the luminous veil getting in the way, and then you look at the number of people who were stopped from committing suicide at some point and how few of those people did go on to commit suicide elsewhere. That's every time. That's a significant drop in the amount of people who are dying by suicide. Ideally, we would like it to be reduced to zero. But our, the systems in the places that we live are not equipped to help everybody through that currently. But 9 out of 10 people who attempt suicide, generally speaking, do not go on to try again. If we can stop somebody from dying, they are more likely to live. So we kind of talked about what makes a place a suicide magnet, right? It's easy access and low visibility are the main things. Places like the Golden Gate Bridge also have a mythos as a place to die. It has a legacy of suicide. And importantly, it does not have a barrier. You don't see people lining up to jump from the Empire State Building or the Eiffel Tower or the Space Needle because there are barriers. And there's lots of people as well. It's high visibility, but it, there's no barriers. So obviously, if you were committed to jump, if it was the day with the last straw, it's easy to get to via bus, a bike, on foot. And there's also a mythos that it's a painless and immediate way to die, which as we talked about, it is not. Not true in every case. I don't know, right? in any case. I Yeah, I don't think there's anything great about reaching 120 kilometers an hour going straight down and then hitting what is the hardest substance on the face of the planet under pressure. Like, <laughs> Yeah, it seems pretty intense. Yeah, and there are all sorts of things that people have tried. The Shinkoiwa train station in Tokyo, which is famous for suicides because... The rapid line passes through the station, going very quickly between stations and not stopping at that one. It is the highest suicide rate of any Japanese train station, and it does not currently have a barrier between the platform and the rails. They do, however, have everything lit in blue, and on the screens they tend to play like calming imagery with like the sound of the beach and stuff to try and keep people calm it's not stopping suicide. So they are looking at putting in a barrier, but it's like, I lived in Japan. I've been at stations in Tokyo where the train does rip through and boy, those things go really fucking fast and there's literally nothing in between you and them. And it's terrifying. And it's like these, 
it doesn't work. The life-affirming signs and suicide numbers, the buddy systems, the security cameras, they aren't nearly as effective as a physical barrier. A barrier erected at a popular jump site in Bristol in the UK immediately cut suicides in the city by half. Wow. The library at NYU, there have been no further jump suicides there. There have been no further jumps from the Prince Edward Viaduct. Barriers work. I don't have a, a nice neat button to end this episode on. They still haven't finished building the suicide barrier at the Golden Gate Bridge. The thing that really rings through it all is that people care. They care a lot. They go out of their way to care. The families and friends of lost ones relive their grief and their tragedy at every meeting and town hall and conference room until the work is done are still there reliving that horror every day to try and save strangers, to, str to save other people that they don't know because they care. Every life is valuable, not because of extrinsic value, but inherently, because being alive is the foundation of everything else. And people care. We care. I care. I can tell you care. Absolutely. <laughs> so if you take nothing else from this, be kinder than you have to be. Listen to people. Care about people. And if the energy is available to you, be there to listen when things are the worst for somebody you care about. Mortals Podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals. Christia, Mariah, and Janine. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast Mortals, on Instagram at Mortals underscore podcast, and on our website, mortalspodcast.com. Show your support, access bonus content, and help us keep ads out of your ears by joining our community at patreon.com slash mortalspodcast. Our music is A Mermaid's Eulogy by Etienne Roussel. Thanks for listening, mortals. Take care of yourselves out there. <laughs>